engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you lads. Hello listeners and welcome back to this episode of The Good Drop with Hawks and AD, a water industry flavoured podcast. I'll introduce our guest for today very shortly, but uh, first just to reintroduce my co-host AD, Anthony Demanti. How are you going AD? Simon, I'm good. Great to uh, be with you again and look forward to today's podcast. You're happy with how things have gone so far and um, are you looking forward to today's uh, discussion with our guest? Yes, well, uh, last week was a a big moment for us, um, having released our two introductory episodes and I have to say the feedback's been really positive. Got a lot of uh, emails and LinkedIn messages of support. I even got a, a lovely text message from a mate of mine who normally calls me Godfather because of my Sicilian heritage, but he thought he'd rename me now as the Podfather, so I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, that might be one you can hold on to. Try to, yes, thank you. Okay, so today's podcast, I suppose in, in our, uh, I guess, development of The Good Drop, we've kind of established some guiding principles perhaps, and uh, what we thought are key topic items for us that are our own interest and um, what we seek to learn a little bit more from in this podcast We've talked about leadership, circular economy, sustainability, and today that's one of the the key focuses of of our discussion probably with our guest um, on sustainability. Um, So just before we start, I just wanted to have a little bit of a conversation with uh, yourself, AD, and I guess mull over what sustainability means for us and what it means for us in in water in general and and engineering in, in the broader term. Thanks, Simon. Yes, Um, sustainability to me is focusing on how our actions today will impact the world tomorrow. We all know a warming planet uh, is challenging sustainability. You just have to turn the TV on now and you often get reminded by the flooding, not just in Queensland, New South Wales, that climate change is really, really here. And it's quite important to address and, and and do more about climate change. So, I suppose uh, it it was it was interesting in our lead up to this that uh, you you picked out some of the EA or Engineers Australia Code of Ethics, and uh, one of the four guiding principles happens to be to promote sustainability. Yes, that's right. Uh, couldn't help but refresh or touch up on the guiding principles that Engineers Australia have got, and as you say that. Um, the fourth one being um, promoting sustainability. And if I could just uh, just elaborate a bit more what Engineers Australia outline, they uh, they focus on ensuring that we promote sustainability. And what that means is identify sustainable outcomes and consider all options in terms of their economic, environmental and social consequences. And they also encourage that as engineers, we aim to deliver outcomes that do not compromise the ability of future life. That second one really resonates with me, especially being a dad as well. You know, I really want to do the best I can to 
use my engineering skills and and knowledge to you know identify solutions that can benefit the community and 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 our future next generation yeah exactly you know, i kind of had a similar thought i was thinking you know pretty much along those same lines of what we do now in, in our everyday engineering lives and and you know sometimes uh, within water we have the opportunity to work in uh, I guess a sustainable well, sustainability space, perhaps not so, so much so as our sustainability uh, experts and counterparts, but um, very much about making sure that uh, we can provide legacy infrastructure that is as sustainable as it, as it can be and um, is going to be there for our future generations and at least a carbon impact cost to our planet as possible. Mm. Isn't it great just to be part of the industry that, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of being able to implement change on this. It's I just feel very powered by by this. It yeah, I, I enjoy it definitely. I mean, like I like I say, um, perhaps we've got um, I guess more more niche sectors within our industry who focus specifically on sustainability, and uh, you know, really looking forward to talking to those type of proponents in the future but um, yeah I think I think engineers in general you know to to see infrastructure you know be be you a structural engineer and and see a, a building that you've created grow up in front of you or a, a water engineer and know that you know you're providing a, a sustainable and, and reliable asset that's going to be used for uh, many years to come I, I think it's a, a nice legacy piece definitely with this all in mind, our first guest is happens to be a champion of sustainability. Are you ready to speak to him? Indeed, I am. All right. Hawks, I'm really happy to introduce this special guest today onto the good drop. That person is farmer, civil engineer, adventurer, climate activist and sustainability champion, Steve Possolt. Now, I first met Steve about 20 years ago. I was a junior engineer working in a small consultancy office in Brisbane. And Steve, who had a penstock manufacturing business out of Ipswich, which is just west of Brisbane, and he would pop in and meet with the senior and principal engineers about projects and opportunities. Now, I never really worked with Steve directly during that time, but I can always remember that he treated me with respect. And as a, a young engineer who was still finding their way, that meant a lot. Now, 20 years after our first meeting, and although he's no longer primarily in the penstock game, our paths crossed again when Steve was a certifying engineer for a custom-made penstock that I required for a critical pump station upgrade project. Now, during this time working with Steve, I did a bit of Google searching on him and researched him more and realised what an incredible life he has led. Now, I'd, I sort of knew Steve like kayaking and I knew his kayak was called Old Yeller and I knew he'd paddled his way down the Murray River but that was about it. It just astounded me to learn that he'd paddled his way on his kayak to Paris via the US and the UK and France and, and all in, in order to raise awareness about climate change. It blew me away as well to find out he'd written two books on his kayaking journeys, Cry Me a River and Tough Is Not Enough and Steve gave me a copy of Tough Is Not Enough, and I'm slowly wake, making my way through that. Steve is also the immediate past chair of the Sustainable Engineering Society, 
which have been working with Engineers Australia to come to grips with the urgency for climate change action. His passion for doing whatever he can to provide a, a better world for his grandchildren truly inspires me. Steve, please accept my apologies for my lack of keeping up with your amazing journey, but it's better late than ever. It's so great to have you with us. Welcome to the Good Drop podcast. Thank you, Anthony, and it's absolutely terrific to be talking to you two guys. So let's see where this leads today, eh? Steve, you've had a long career in water engineering. Um, can you just give us a, a brief rundown about yourself and your career, your upbringing, and, and how you started on your engineering journey? I uh, was born in Grafton, which is on the banks of the Clarence River. So all of my early life was spent in or around the river. In the 1960s, they did a whole pile of flood mitigation works, and uh, I saw the the bulldozers and the scrapers and the drag lines, and I thought, this looks like good stuff. So I became an engineer. And as it's turned out, I made the right decision. I'm, I am an engineer through and through, which also means there's something badly wrong with me in some areas. But I started at Sydney Water. I was there for six years while I did my degree part-time. Sydney Water was a great organisation then. Uh, because that was the boom in water and sewerage when we were sewering places like the northern suburbs of, of Sydney. But I wanted to see the world, so I took off to the UK and found myself working in Libya, which was very interesting. I learned to play lug, uh, rugby. Um, every team I was on was called the rest of the world because every other country had enough people for a team, but with only two Australians there, we were always thrown into the rest of the world. So I've had an international rugby career. Um, came back to Australia. To cut a long story short, I finished up as a director at Aquatech Maxcon. I was there for nine years. We built the company up from a manufacturing company with a water treatment equipment supply business uh, on the side of it to being a water treatment equipment supply business. And then I had a shot at valves after that um, and then decided it was time to have a go at my own business. And I'd learned a little bit about penstocks and I knew that no other engineers were working on penstocks in Australia. I thought, ha ha, this will be good. So I started my own business and as the only engineer at the time in penstocks, I had most of the knowledge, so it went on. It went on from there. Became a successful business, but I decided uh, at age 54 that I would sell it and take off on um, trying to save the world with um, with my uh, talks about climate change on the back of kayaking through places. So the first trip was Brisbane to Adelaide. I had no no idea whether. I'd be able to drag the thing up the mountain, but I worked out when I got there that if you put one foot in front of the other, and if it's actually in front and not behind the other, you're going to go forward. So it was a bit of a struggle, but we got old Yeller up the hill. That's where it all came from. So you've gone from a successful manufacturing business, the Penstock King, doing what he loves. What happened in your life for you to go, hang on a sec, I want to kayak 
and promote and understand climate change and, and just totally change direction? There must have been something. What happened? Well, I decided that if I kept working like that, uh, Anthony, that, that I might kill myself. So um, I decided that there was more to life than money. I'd, um, I'd been indoctrinated to work my guts out. I was, I was a workaholic, but really didn't understand that I was. But um, I had a major accident in 2006 and uh, when I realised how serious it had been and that I probably should have died, um, that's when I decided to make my life count. And um, interestingly, following on from that, I was somewhere between Brewarrina and Burke. It was uh, middle of winter, clear, starry night, and I decided not to sleep in the tent. I got a tarpaulin and I hooked the corner up onto the branch of a tree and I laid down under the tarpaulin in my sleeping bag and I looked at the stars and I said to myself, what a dickhead you've been, sunshine. Here you are. You've finally discovered that what's going to make you life in happy in life is a $20 tarpaulin. So... That's when I really had the epiphany about the importance of life compared to money. So was it a near mix your accident or? Uh... Oh yeah, I I landed on on my head and shoulder at a hundred kilometres an hour out in the sand when my bike got into a tank slapper, and I I know that I can go from a hundred kilometres an hour to zero and live. I don't think I could go from 105 to zero and live. So that's how close it was. Right, really cutting it fine. Oh, Steve, that's uh, wise words about um, what's important in life. Yeah, stopping and smelling the roses is always, it's always one of those moments that make you uh, sit back and, and appreciate what you do have and, and stop longing for what you don't. Yeah, very much. Well, I um, think COVID might have helped a few people in that. I think a few people have re-evaluated their lives, which would be good if they have. Yeah, I think we're fortunate now. You know, we've definitely got much more an opportunity to have that, uh, I guess, flexible work arrangement and um, people are kind of resting back that that opportunity to try and equalise that work-life balance. And, yeah, can definitely uh, empathise with that idea of, of workaholic um, probably getting tapped on the shoulder to come upstairs and, and finish up work for the day. Um, <laughs> so going back to that moment where you said, I'm going to kayak down the Murray River to Adelaide. People must have thought you're crazy. What are you doing this for? What was the initial response when you said, I'm, I'm going to embark on this journey? I don't, I don't really remember, Anthony. Um, I think that there was a lot of interest in it at the time, and I had I had no idea what I was getting into. I did know that I wanted to do it in winter because I don't particularly like snakes. That was about it. I didn't really know much about the water courses. It was but, just a full-on learning curve 
but I really did want to talk about climate change, which was relatively new in um, in 2007 when I set off. The really big surprise that I got, which continues to me to amaze me about the human race, is that uh, I was so optimistic then about what we needed to do and what we would do. But when I got to Toowoomba, from there all the way to the Murray River, 99.9% .9 of the people were climate deniers. Mm -hmm. And then when I got back and I found some of the trolls on the, um, on the internet, I was just, I was just staggered. I, I just looked through the world with rose-coloured glasses, I suppose, at the time. I just thought, educate people and we've got this. And so to find the kickback and how many years we've lost and how dangerous the situation is now amazes me. Yeah, I definitely hear. I mean, I'm sure Al Gore probably feels a lot the same way. People like Al Gore, in my opinion, have totally failed. Tim Flannery admits that he's failed. I admit that I've failed and it's hard to actually face up to that. But if you go, okay, I've failed doing this way, let's try another way. Al Gore is still saying the same things that he said in 1988. He's still got his climate reality people. He's still doing it exactly the same way. Now, I'm not saying it, there's anything wrong with what he does, but it hasn't got us to where we need to get. So what I've spent the last three years, four years, sorry, doing is working with Lara Harland to put together a course on sustainability for all engineers. It will translate to other to other professions, but we're engineers, so engineers is where we start. We understand engineers. We understand that engineers are really stubborn people sometimes. <laughs> Dogged. Y yes. And so Lara said, well, we have to do this with characters. And that's been a lot of fun in that we've we've got animated characters in there and I can take real life experiences and put them in there and let the characters just do it. So I'm talking uh, maybe six months ago to an engineering friend and Anthony, you would know this bloke. Mm -hmm. And I said something about tipping points and he said, you can't say tipping points because when it tips, you can't get it back. And I said, precisely, mate. That's exactly what we're talking about. So anyway, when we do the course, we've got a father and a daughter. And the father says to the daughter, you can't say tipping points. <laughs> <laughs> so then the daughter then responds on what a tipping point is and how why, why they're dangerous. So using we've used that a lot in when I hear kickback from engineers, the voice of the father can then 
use that as a challenge to the daughter and hopefully that's a way of breaking through rather than we know a PowerPoint doesn't work. We tried a very comprehensive PowerPoint just like Al Gore's PowerPoints. We took it to a certain capital city in Australia and showed it to people from the division and they basically said, how dare you come and lecture us to us about this stuff? We know all of that. So we asked some questions and they knew nothing. They'd switched <laughs> off. They hadn't listened to anything we'd said. So that's where Lara and I decided that we had to learn a bit about psychology and how, how you might treat an engineer, how you might lead them to the solution or to the understanding that you want to get. So it's all about using the knowledge that you have, but also learning how to teach, I guess. This work yeah. that you're working on with Lara, is that part of the Sustainable Engineering Society? Or is that separate to the society? Because I'd like to learn more about your involvement with that because you've been the, the chair and now you're the immediate past chair. Yeah, what what happened was Lara did some training by Leith Sharp, who's from Harvard University, on sustainability and how to talk to people. So in March 2019, we set up a meeting with the Environmental College, the Sustainable Engineering Society, and we had representatives from the College of Leadership and Management and from Electrical. And um, we had it had some training with with Leith, and then we had a workshop. Okay, what's the best thing we can do as an organisation to make a difference to the world? Now I had my ideas, which didn't include a course, uh, but I lost, and um, it was really good the way the process went, and so. What everybody said is we need a course to teach people and it needs to be good. So Steve, you're the chair of the, the society. Lara, you're the chair of the college. Get stuck into it. So we did, but we found that um, the amount of work involved was just huge and people just couldn't spend the time on it. So Lara and I have basically been coming up with the content ourselves. Between us, we would have spent over 5,000 hours. Some of it we've funded and some of it so far, since the Sustainable Engineering Society has funded, but it's it's quite expensive. So our we're, we're out of pocket personally by about um, between us 30 something thousand and uh, about 50,000 I think per cent and so we're at the point now of well how do we recover that let's get it out there so we're not quite sure where the future lies but we have a meeting with with Engineers Australia and they I think are going to be very supportive so let's let's just see what happens sounds like a fantastic idea and I mean I think education is where it, it lies in, in at least addressing that that gap in the, in the issue and I guess trying to counter you know arguments by by say deny types that that it isn't a problem 
I can't personally talk to deniers. I just don't have that capacity. I get angry and it's no good saying to somebody, well, how can you be so bloody stupid? You know, that that's never gonna win an argument. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to convince maybe 15% of the population, no matter what you do, you're never going to convince them. You, you've seen that in some of what they call right-wing media. But anecdotally, because I live in the Richmond Valley, not far from Lismore, many people are saying to me that people that they didn't think would even recognise or talk about climate change are now talking about it after the floods because they're going, this can't be right. You know, we've in, in, in my valley now, about five minutes drive from me, we have people who went under a flood in 2017. They were burnt out. Their neighbours lost their lives in 2019. We had COVID for two years. Then they find themselves on the roof of their house with two metres more water than they've ever had before. And then a month later, they're back on the roof of their house again. So so they're all going, no, no, I I hope this isn't normal. So they are more receptive, I think, to understanding what climate change means. Yeah, I think I was just going to say there's nothing like a personal experience to drive the message home. It's certainly confronting. I have uh, family members in in Lismore and yeah, just the images you see and surely we have to look at the positives that some of these images are helping to get the message through to people that this is real, this is now. Do you think of it as a blessing? Um, Yes and no. I mean, um... I knew it had to happen. I'd have to say that I had a couple of weeks of um, mild depression because I've been saying this is going to happen, this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And I talked to my neighbours about the level of their house and I said, you know, it's, it's not high enough. And then I'm in their house because I knew as the water drops below the floorboards, that's when you get in and start throwing water around. So I was in there bucketing out water and I've gone, I don't know, I, I just, it's just started to get to me. I, I knew it was going to happen and then when you see it happen, it is just so depressing. And when you see the agony of people in the valley now who seem to have no hope, it's absolutely terrible. Yeah, I've I've noticed how it's still a, an ongoing trauma for people that are still out of their houses, say, for example, in Lismore, and there's no near end in sight in terms of getting back in and, you know, the, the shortages in terms of material and labour and, and builders and, and people that, you know, people need to come in and help them repair their, their places of, of dwelling, you know, it's, it's definitely heartbreaking. Well... This is the new world, and we've only got one degree of warming. So it seems to me that we're going to two degrees. I'd hope that we wouldn't, but everything points to the fact, the way governments are behaving, 
that we will go to at least two degrees. So all of my attention now, apart from the course with Lara, is how to cope with that. So there's a new course um, that's being run by an organisation called Resilient Byron. And um, it's a five day course and it includes uh, counselling and it includes first aid. It will build up people in the community to be able to do stuff. And you saw you saw in Lismore what the defence people have been saying for years. So the SES have been saying, don't necessarily count on us. The RFS have been saying, the Rural Fire Service, sorry, mm -hmm. have been saying, um, don't necessarily count on us. The military say, you can't count on us because we might be busy fighting somewhere. So if you can't and you're left on your own, what do you do? Mm. And one of the things is to get a whole pile of community carers that are listed with the emergency services and they will have the local knowledge and they won't be constrained like an official body is constrained. In Lismore, when the SES needed 50 flood boats, they were never going to have that. They got two. They can't rescue the people. So people turn up in their tinnies and away they go. And it was very orderly. It was mm -hmm. done extremely well. The SES said you can't do that. Now, they had to do that because they saved a lot of lives. That's so I right. think the SES are now finding that they have to look to the community. And so if you've got these community care responders, they will know in their community. Like there's a tree fallen down and, and the roads cut, cut or whatever. And and um, the SES can't get there. And if they can get there, they don't know whether they've got somebody with a chainsaw license or whatever. But the community mm. carer says, oh, uh, Steve can use a chainsaw. And and Bob, Bob's got a Bob's got a forklift on the front of his tractor. Get him out, get him in to shift the tree. So that's the sort of response that I think is very Australian, very community oriented. And I think that's where our answers lie in response to the disasters that are coming. I've got a couple of points on that. Firstly, the yeah, the idea of a community, I guess, community emergency response plan, I think that groundswell of of kind of mates helping mates is that's like you say very Australian and, and I guess what I liked about it is the fact that it's probably not shackled by bureaucracy and needing to make sure that we've got this safe work method statement in place in, a, in order to be able to use a certain equipment or this you know I've, I've got this certification of, uh, of uh, ability to, to use this machinery yeah, so I think, you know, in times of need and struggle, those those things perhaps go out the window a little bit and it's it's about who is able and who is willing to, to chip in and, and make the contribution and, and lend a hand. And um, that was, you know, really inspiring, you know, working with colleagues who would travel down to Lismore on the weekend from the Gold Coast where I live and lend a hand on their weekend to complete strangers merely because they were close enough and, and willing to help. Second part of my question is, what 
do you think is going to happen in the future in terms of us continuing to live and build in floodplains? Oh, we're going to move. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, it's just a matter of when. And I've been saying, say, you've got sea level rise around Ballina, around the, the, the CBD is on an island. Mm-hmm. So what you're probably going to do is first you'll build a wall. Flood levy. And that'll work, yep. And then, oh, needs to be a bit bigger, the wall. So you build <laughs> a bigger wall. But there's some point when you go, ah. Oh, I don't think I want a wall that big. We're going to have to move. Now, that same applies to the Gold Coast. The same applies all over the place. It's it. The question is, is Lismore the first place where we decide, yeah, we've got to move? And I thought it might be, but I'm thinking probably not so how many more floods how many more times have we got to go under how much deeper does it have to get because it's going to get deeper as as we get more moisture in the atmosphere like the seven percent more moisture in the atmosphere per degree of temperature rise so your intensity goes up so your events are going to get bigger so it's going to happen but when 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 are we smart enough to go uh oh no no that'll do me Steve, um, tell me about how you've been working with the Engineers Australia organisation and how climate change is changing, um, rainfall intensity. Tell me about what's happening in that space. I, I sort of been a bit away from that area as part of my current work, but what what do you know? Are we are, are we is there work happening at the moment? To tell you the truth, I'm I'm a bit disappointed, but. I'm not surprised because there's always an inertia there. I've, I've attended a number of hydrology symposiums and I attended one with the Australian Water School this morning that was using some really, really clever people in um, the US Army Corps of Engineers and from universities in um, the USA. They were looking at probability, but they were looking at it as to what we know about probability, what we know about distributions, like it's you know you know what a normal distribution is. Every everybody knows that. Everybody knows what happens if you throw a coin. You know you got a 50-50 chance of getting a head and a tail if you throw it twice. All that sort of thing. We we know all about that, and so they're extending their knowledge in that area, and then they're extending their knowledge in what happens when you get a big event. Is that an outlier that could have happened or would have happened or is it not an outlier? Has the basis changed? My argument though is that there's not enough work being done on what has changed with the baseline. So you can do an event probability curve and you can say, which it seems like half the hydrologists are saying now, look, instead of designing for a one in a hundred year event, we need to design for a one in a thousand year event or whatever. And I'm going, no, if you want to design for a one in a hundred year event, that's what you do. But you've got to know what a one in a hundred year event is. 
So there's all sorts of talk about that doesn't work with the community. You can't say one in a hundred year event. You have to say, look, in any in any given year, that's a one percent chance that you'll get this flood. Because if you say, like Barnaby Joyce says, that was a one in two thousand five hundred year event, everybody goes, Great, won't be another one for another two thousand five hundred years. At another symposium that I went to, there was a hydrologist at uh, University of New South Wales who said that it looks like there is a signature of about 15% increase in intensity of short duration events. And you're not going to know on long duration events for another 50 years because you need another 50 years data during mm -hmm. which time it will change. So my argument, rightly or wrongly, is okay, we've had one degree of rise global temperature that's translated to probably a 15% rise in rainfall intensity in short durations, which probably means it translates the same with long duration events. And if we double our temperature rise to two degrees, then probably you can hold another 15% or you, you're going to hold another 7% moisture, but you're probably going to have another 15% increase. So as engineers, it's incumbent on us to be cautious with what we do. If you look at all of the engineering standards, if there's a chance of loss of life, we don't like anything less than a one in or anything more than a one in 10,000 chance. That's what we like. If you get engineers together, some of them say rather than four zeros, one in 10,000, they want five zeros, one in 100,000. And we get on when we get on a plane, we want more than that. It's one in 13 million, our <laughs> chance of dying if we get on a plane. However, the chance of catastrophic failure of civilization as we know it is about one in five. <laughs> oh, it doesn't paint a pretty picture, I have to say. In in your experience uh, in the uh, Sustainable Engineering Society, did you have much interaction with, with politicians and trying to convey, I guess, the climate change message? No, I've, I've tried um, personally, but no. Um, Engineers Australia is a conservative organisation. Um, we're not really allowed to go out and speak on behalf of um, Engineers Australia unless you're authorised. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I, I haven't had a lot of experience with that. But but what I will say is that when I addressed EPAC, which is uh, all the leaders of um, the colleges, uh, the societies, the board, the CEO, they're all together at this meeting. And so when we launched the sustainability information, it was like pushing it out to everybody. And then the next year I went back and um, talked about sustainability. So that would have been 2017. And that was well, well received. And then in 2018, 
they're asking for us to talk to us to them about sustainability. So there's a really big shift in Engineers Australia leaders attitudes, which must reflect the membership, you would think, which is good. Definitely, yeah. You spoke at a sustainable engineering conference. You were telling a story about a, was it a train track? Ah, people don't understand what climate change is in in lots of areas. So uh, last year we had a major um, train wreck on, um, on the Brisbane to Sydney line. And um, the line was out of action for a few weeks, I believe. Nobody was killed because it was a, uh, a goods train. However, people didn't realise that, that that was climate change in action because the, the culverts were all under design for the weather event that they had. <laughs> washed, washed the whole bloody bank away and, uh, and the trains didn't have a railway line to, um, to drive on. Yeah. When you think about it, it's everywhere. Every engineering decision we make, I make, Simon makes, it's all it's all linked back to temperature, water level. It's just mind blowing that decisions are being made now and are we close? We don't know, Anthony, but the um the problem is that the legal profession are onto it. So, as was shown uh, with a wind farm in the USA, in Texas, they couldn't provide electricity because the, uh, the, the wind farm iced up and um, the people that they were supplying wind energy to sued them for $130 million, I think. And it was found that they had to pay, even though they followed all standards, the designers were supposed to know about climate change and understand that the um, uh, the temperature, because in, in the Northern Hemisphere, the um, jet stream has become more wavy and so you get really high temperatures in some places and really cold temperatures in others, like it'll snow in Florida and be 36 degrees up in and in Alaska, and so it was found by the courts that engineers should have anticipated that. So there's no good news for us guys. <laughs> Certainly sobering, isn't it? Steve, can I go back to your kayaking? I want to hear and see some of the things that you've seen and said, oh my goodness. I'd rather talk about the fun things that I've well, seen. Well, the fun things like, are fine. Okay, like, the fun um, things then. Okay, talk about I the fun am, things. Here okay. I am paddling down the New South Wales coast. So I'm paddling along near Coffs Harbour. And I hear this noise. And I turn around and there's this eye that's like three feet across, a, a metre across, a, about a metre from the kayak. And what had happened was a whale had decided to come up right beside me and check out what was on top of this big yellow thing. So my heart just raced for probably an hour after that. But when you're, when you're out there 
you see lots and lots of really interesting, really interesting things. Like on the last trip from um, uh, when I finished off the big trip to get back to Canberra, I paddled from from um, Ballina down the coast to Maroo and then dragged it up to Canberra to finish the trip. But one day I was looking in the distance and there was this fish leaping out of water and it was about a kilometre and a half away. It was a big fish and it just kept leaping out of the water and then I just forgot about it and then a whole pile of dolphins turned up beside me, like 20 of them, and they swam along beside me and then jumped out of the water on the left-hand side of the kayak, which a mariner would say the port side. So they come out of the water on the left-hand side and slowly steered me to the right. So I was pointing away from where they wanted to go, obviously, because as soon as they got me there, they took off flat out towards where this fish had been jumping out of the water. And there was a huge commotion going on over there. And I have no idea what that was all about. But when you're out there doing things in nature, you see all sorts of surprising things. It just astounds me that you're in the middle of the ocean all by yourself. Anything can come and grab you. Where did you get your willpower just to keep going? I, you don't need willpower. And um, and people have asked me when I do my presentations on the really tough bits up the Mississippi in a flood, because I'm the only idiot who's ever done that. And um, they say, how scared were you? And I've I've never been scared, ever, ever. Even even when I saw what I thought was a shark in um, near Adelaide when I was nearly finished the first trip and I paddled over to have a look at it and found out it was just it was just a seal with its fin up playing <laughs> in the sun. I've never I've never been scared, but I have to tell you the thing that really does scare me is what climate change, the attack that we've got on biodiversity. The attack that we've got on the environment, what all of that means for my children and grandchildren, that that scares the living daylights out of me. On that note, Steve, um, probably not not necessarily a personal question, but um, just to, to, to note the decision you've made as far as avoiding airline travel. And um, I know uh, you've got a son overseas and I believe you've got grandkids over there too. Is that correct? No, he hasn't come good with any grandkids, that one. The grandkids <laughs> are still in Australia. Um, okay, good. But, but, yes, but about I've, that I've, decision. I've made the decision. I hope I stick to it. It's very hard if you've got family overseas not to want to go and see them, but I do understand the harm that air travel causes. So I haven't been on a plane for uh, certainly more than three years. And that's that's the way it'll stay until we find a way of doing it reasonably. Interesting. Simon, have you got any more questions for Steve? Oh, I think you've covered an, an amazingly broad depth of, uh, of topics, I think. All right. Steve, I'm going to ask you now some some of the, the lighter 
questions, what we call the fabulous five questions. And <laughs> and I hope you enjoy these fabulous five questions. So let's see how you go, okay? The first question, what has been the greatest piece of advice received and who told you? I really have difficulty figuring that out because at one stage in my life, I subscribed to Peter Brock's strategy of bite off more than you can chew and chew like hell. And I found that can get you into a, a big lot of trouble. And so I guess I'd have to I'd have to settle with what Joe Richardson had on his desk and what I put on my desk. And that's about persistence. Persistence is everything. So I guess that's that's the best advice. It's what stuck with me. Be persistent. Which suits a really stubborn person like an engineer. Simon, did you want to go with question two? Sure. Who would you like to share a dinner with and why? James Hansen from um, uh, I forget the, what his organisation is, but he's ex NASA. Um, he's my hero um, in the climate change area, and he uh, he got arrested over the Keystone protesting the Keystone pipeline. So I um, I just think he's he's been the greatest advocate around climate change for the longest time and the greatest science scientist in that area. Okay, third question. What is your greatest non-work related achievement? I've met a few adventurers over the past few years and they see me as an adventurer, which I really didn't. And so I really feel chuffed about that. And there's a bloke who's an Australian who's paddling the longest river on all of the continents. So he's got seven rivers because you've got there's a bit of a river on uh, Antarctica that he's got to paddle. And so he contacted me when he was doing when he was halfway down the Darling and asked for advice. And I actually met him a couple of times and, and then went to the end of the river and met him. He, he'd already paddled the Mississippi the Volga, the Amazon. And I said, uh, what was the toughest? <laughs> he said, he said, the darling. I said, you've got to be joking. And he said, no, mate. He said, those log jams do your do my head in. <laughs> and and what happens is the river, the river's blocked with, with log jams that can be 10 or 20 metres long, can be longer and they might be a kilometre apart or they might be 200 metres apart or they might be five kilometres apart. But that was the first thing that I saw on my very first trip. And I tell you, I didn't like it. I was doing my head in. But for a fellow adventurer to say it's the worst thing he's seen, I thought, well, that's all right. <laughs> all right. Question four. Favourite place to travel and why? Well, as you know, um, I don't really now, but um, I really used to like to catch up with friends in England. I've spent a fair bit of time there. 
particularly back in the 70s. Um, so it was, it, it's always good to, to catch up with friends. And I really like why my son lives in the Rocky Mountains in Canada, but um, won't be going uh, there now. So um, probably favourite place is just going to be to go to Evans Head for a surf. <laughs> a good spot. <laughs> All right, Stephen, the last question of the Fabulous Five is, what is your go-to drink, red, white or other? Well, unfortunately, it has to be tonic without the gin. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't like a beer or a red wine or a white wine, but I've had a little bit of problem with blood pressure and... Um, the doctor sent me along to get a coronary calcium score. So that's a CT scan and he rang me up as soon as he got the results from the scan and he said, come and see me. And I'd already Googled it and I knew over 400 was pretty bad. Over a thousand, they say, um, get your affairs in order. <laughs> and um, he said mine was 2,233, which was like oh, a bloody hell. Um, better behave myself. So, um, <laughs> so you're on the tonic. <laughs> <laughs> for now, for now, Anthony, yes. I hope the uh, the medication or whatever he's prescribed is remedying that. And, uh, well, you're let's not see at risk. what happens. It's, it's really, because it's I'll be 70 soon, in my mind, I'm still an athlete, and, and um, I've still got a, I've got a, a fantastic six pack hidden just underneath the beer belly. <laughs> and That's when the doctor all. says you've got to go on medication, it's it's a bit of a shock to the system. It's a bit of a wake up call. So, yep, I've had my personally, I've had my wake up call. <laughs> okay. So look, that's the end of the, the the questions, but I do have one more I'd like to slip in. What's your next chapter? The next chapter is to finish the course with Lara and hope that we can make a difference there. To try to figure out how to make 110 acres of floodplain land that goes under five metres of water, how to make that work. And to continue to continue to make a difference in my own little ways, I suppose. Mm, make your own contribution. It's always it's always how you could measure your own input, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, with the with the trips, they haven't been the success that I'd particularly wanted, but when you find out that uh, when somebody comes up to you and says, oh, that, that's really motivated me, and a number of people who've read Tough Is Not Enough have come to me and said, that's really motivated me. I'm thinking, job done. That's <laughs> that's what I want to do. You take over now. Well, personally, if I achieve a fraction of what you have, Steve, I'll be very happy. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Uh, Anthony, you've got any parting comments? No, it's been great, Steve. Look, thanks for sharing all your words of wisdom with us. And uh, it's been a, just really eye-opening. I continue to love hearing your story. So thank you again. 
Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Anthony. It's been a pleasure to speak with you guys, particularly as um, as you appreciate the engineering aspects. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Good Drop. Thanks again, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>